Great to see everyone, uh, mostly in the shade, which is, uh, I think, as we all would like it. Uh, I really want to appreciate our teams for making this happen, and, uh, and thanks for, for being here. Yeah, praise God. Also want to thank our neighbors uh, for uh, being happy with us doing this. Uh, I will pray in a moment that, that they are. Indeed, uh, it's a great thing uh, to be able to do this. Um, as I said in my email yesterday, we don't, we don't do this kind of thing very often, but this summer seems like uh, the right time to do it, uh, to be able to uh, be intentional about putting ourselves all together in one place. Just given the size of our building as a church, we can never really be in one place at one time. So uh, I think it's a great opportunity for us to do that, to be able to sing and worship God together under the sky. Uh, what a great thing. And then to be able later to celebrate communion together. Such a great thing. I hope you agree. And if you're a guest here, uh, along with Nate, I want to welcome you. Really glad uh, that you are here. Normally, we do meet in inside, uh, but uh, we're doing this, this a few times uh, this summer. Uh, if you don't have a lyric sheet, we're going to be in Psalm 128. Uh, on the back of that page, if you got one, is our scripture for today. You, you can look there. It's nice to look through. If you have a Bible, that's great, or an app, but we'll be in Psalm 128. And uh, I just want to pray for us as uh, we get going and ask for God's blessing on our time. So, Lord God, we are thankful for uh, the sunshine, uh, thankful, Lord, uh, for the opportunity we have to gather together uh, out, outdoors under the sky that you made um, I pray, Lord, that this would be a time of great blessing for us. I thank you for those that are joining us as guests. I thank you for our neighbors uh, who uh, maybe have to listen in because of the volume, Lord. Uh, I just pray that they would be gracious with us. And uh, Lord, even that some of the message, some of the, the song lyrics would be a blessing to them. We really do want uh, everyone in this neighborhood to come to know you, have the joy of of knowing their sins are forgiven and uh, knowing who you are as Savior and Lord. So we pray for that and uh, pray that we as a church would be uh, an agent of love here in this community. Uh, I pray for right now as we turn our attention to another psalm, uh, Lord, uh, may you stir in our hearts, uh, especially with this psalm, Lord, which is all about what it means to be blessed by you. I pray that you would indeed stir up that sense of your blessing, uh, perhaps conviction. Uh, please use me in spite of my own sin, and uh, Lord, please encourage your people now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin by uh, telling you some history. Uh, this is... Uh, American history, so forgive me of that. But uh, in 1776, uh, as you may know, uh, the 13 American colonies uh, had had enough of England. As Canadians, it's tough to imagine why, right? The British are so great. We love them so much. Uh, and yet the Americans saw it differently. Uh, they had uh, tried to get the King of England to listen to them. They had tried to get better representation. They had thrown a lot of tea into the Boston Harbor. Um, they really wanted uh, a greater sense of autonomy and came to the point of realizing that uh, England was just not going to give it to them. Um, so they decided to separate from England. Uh, if you, you know, you might prefer to hear this in musical form, so you can go watch Hamilton, the whole, you know, American Revolution. I'm not going to do uh, the songs. But uh, the reason I'm telling you this is because the document that they wrote to declare to the world, look, here we're going to separate from England and we're going to start our own government, is called the Declaration of Independence. And in it, we find some of the most famous lines uh, probably ever written in terms of uh, history, political history. They go like this. You probably know them, but I'll, I'll read them to you. Uh, the second paragraph, first line says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it's that last word that I'm interested in this morning, happiness. Uh, notice there that happiness is, is modified. It's, it's the pursuit of happiness. Life and liberty are mostly binary things, right? Either you're alive, or you're not alive, either you're free or you're not free. But happiness, uh, happiness is something that is um, often elusive, something that we can get by degrees. We think we have it. It slips through our hands. Uh, I think we'd probably all agree that the pursuit of happiness has become, for us in Western civilization, like the thing. It really marks our lives, marks our communities. If there's one question, really, that, that tends to tell us whether we have a life that's worth living, it's the question, are you happy? It's kind of the litmus test. Wherever you are, someone close to you, are you, are you happy? What we're really saying is, is everything in your life worth it? Have you gotten out of life what we all think that we deserve or what should rightly be there? A sense of happiness, a sense of joy, a sense of contentment. It may sound uh, like I'm being a little bit cynical about this whole idea of happiness, uh, but actually I think this is really an important topic. In fact, um, if you think about those lines that the, the founding fathers wrote, um, they tied this idea of happiness back to their idea of God. Uh, they said that, you know, human beings are endowed by their creator with these certain rights, one of them to, to pursue happiness. They saw it as woven into the fabric of, of humanity. And see, a biblical view of God uh, meshes with that. In fact, it, it lines up exactly because, we may not think of it this way, but, but God is the happiest being in the universe. You ever thought of that? God is the happiest. He is completely self-sufficient. He has all power, all authority. He even has community within himself. He, he is and has, has always been the happiest being in the universe, and we are created in his image. So it makes sense that we would be interested in happiness for ourselves. Another thing we don't often think about is the fact that God actually does want us to be happy. In fact, that's what our psalm is, is all about today. God's recipe for happiness. Um, it's not a mystery. It's not really some deep hidden truth. It's not only for like the super saints of the church. Um, it's for all of us. What we're going to see in our text today is that happiness begins with God and then flows out into every aspect of our lives and even the lives of the people uh, around us. So I'm going to read uh, Psalm 128 all the way through. And uh, then we're going to look and uh, see what, it, what is this recipe for happiness that God has given us. Um, so you can read along or just listen. Here's our psalm for this morning. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So just six verses, not a long uh, psalm. Uh, we're going to attack it in two parts. The first majority of our time will be spent in verse 1. Verse 1 is where we get uh, the recipe for happiness. After that, we'll look at kind of some of the effects of it. Uh, so verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. Uh, you may have noticed 
that even though I'm talking a lot about happiness, the word happy isn't actually in the psalm. Uh, it, it is there, in fact, in the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew word for blessed uh, is also translated happy. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, 29, 29 says it this way, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. It could have read blessed are you, O Israel. Uh, content, joyful, recipient of good things from God. All of that is packed up in this idea of what it means to be blessed, what it means to be happy. Now we have to understand there, um, this definition of happiness, this biblical understanding isn't, isn't thin. It, it isn't just the emotional feelings of happiness, giddiness. That's, that's not what we're talking about. And it's good we're not talking about just that because that type of happiness is very thin, very flimsy. It's easily lost. You see this in children, right? When something they get uh, ice cream, they are ecstatic, like shaking with joy. And then when it falls on the ground, it's tears immediately. That's, that's often the kind of thing that we associate with happiness. But here in, in the Bible, it's much stronger, much deeper. And we see that it has two ingredients, the fear of the Lord and walking in his ways. So we're going to look at each one uh, at some, some length. To fear the Lord uh, is mentioned a lot in the Bible. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says it's the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 111.10, it's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14.2, it's the fountain of life. Acts 9.31, so the New Testament, is the source of building up of the church. Over and over again throughout the Bible, this sense of fearing God, fearing the Lord is always connected with blessings from God, good things from God, happiness in your life. So what does it mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? I've given you on your sheet... Uh, a short definition I think is really helpful. Uh, so if you have it, you can look at it or just listen. Uh, this is from Tremper Longman III. Uh, he's a, a biblical scholar. He says this, to fear the Lord, this is not some type of emotion that makes one run away. So we're not talking about terror, like, ah, like running from a fear of a spider. It is an acknowledgement of God's central place and power. Those who fear the Lord will be humble, not proud, and will listen to God's laws and advice. So if there's a word to use for fearing the Lord, it would be uh, probably reverence, a sense of awe, a sense of the, the, the majesty, the grandeur, the, the greatness of God that, that really we take him seriously, that we recognize that his rightful place is at the center of our lives and our community and, and really our civilization. So this sense of God to fear the Lord is of course very different than the secular understanding of God. Uh, most people in the world would, would treat God um, fairly trivially, right? See, the belief in the Lord is, is kind of quaint, maybe foolish. But it's also very different, and I think maybe this is most relevant for us, it's very different from those that say they believe in God, but don't actually live like he's that important. It's possible, right, to, to say that you believe in God, but live in such a way that he's, he doesn't really loom large in your life. And we see this because... Uh, much of the time, even for those inside the church, there are things in our life that we might say we fear more. Uh, by that, you might say like, man, I, I have a sense of concern. Fear might be too strong, but about my finances, uh, about my health. We may not realize it, but the thing that governs a lot of the way we think and a lot of the way we feel is, is, a, is a worry about um, the relationships in our lives. There are many, many things that if we were to visualize them, they would loom large. They, they would be big, central to our lives. Now, all of these things are things that we should be concerned about. 
of course we should think about our finances, our work, our, our relationships, of, of course. But when they become central, when there's a sense of, of fear of them, a sense of almost reverence for them, that we, we need this thing, um, that's a big problem for our happiness. Because even if we get these things, even if we somehow could acquire them um, in perfect supply, they, they would not be guaranteed to deliver the, the happiness, the blessing that we want. We probably know, or at least know that in the world, there are many deeply unhappy people who are healthy, they're wealthy, they're popular. It never actually brings them what they think that it's going to. That's one of the biggest problems with humanity. We're focusing on the wrong things, but that's, that's not the only problem for our happiness. It's not just that we have the wrong focus. It's that we actually don't revere the Lord of the universe, that our lack of reverence for God hinders our happiness. And so I'm going to give you one sort of practical reason for this, how this, this happens. When we don't have God at the center, how, how this skews our sense of, of joy and contentment. Um, without a fear of God, one of the things that happens is that we have no ultimate moral compass. The Bible says uh, it this way in Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's like the opposite of fearing the Lord, right? There is no God. And, and here's how it goes on to describe this person. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. See, sin is at its root a rejection of God. And from that flows all manner of corruption and, and, and evil. So while our society has a whole lot of um, ways to restrain evil, like rules, like laws, like things that are trying to keep you know, the worst part of us kind of together, uh, doing the speed limit, uh, not hurting each other, uh, not taking advantage, all those things, they're there to kind of restrain our evil. The truth of the matter is that none of those things can really effectively restrain and hinder the wickedness that is in each of our hearts. So here's an example of this from, from literature. I think you can call it literature. This is from a book uh, that you might've read in high school called The Outsiders. Remember that, that book? It's about a bunch of hoodlums uh, from the wrong side of the tracks called The Greasers. And um, it's like in the 1960s, which is why they have names like Greasers. Um, but one of them, so they're all, they're all rough. They're, their lives are just rough. It's difficult. But one of them is especially violent and volatile. His name is Dallas. Uh, he, is, he is the one who's like the true rebel without a cause, uh, always carries a switchblade, uh, a gun. The other greasers are even afraid of, of him. I mean, he's proud of his arrest record. Uh, he's quick to get into a fight. I mean, he is, he's a bad dude. He's angry at the world. And in the end, Dallas uh, self-destructs. He robs a store. He gets shot by the police. And uh, there's always this line that the narrator uh, says describing him. So I'll read it to you. It says, Dallas didn't die a hero. He died violent and young and desperate, just like we all knew he'd die someday. It's a tragic story. But, but really part of the tragedy, as you read kind of the fullness of, of the story itself, is that Dallas wasn't just an angry person. He was a deeply hurt person. I think we know that about human beings that the anger and the rage very often comes from a place of deep hurt, and in his case, a deep longing to be connected. 
In fact, the real reason that he self-destructs at the end of the book is because one of the youngest members of the gang uh, dies in a fire. He was helping some kids and he dies. And for Dallas, it's just like the straw that breaks the camel's back. He's just like, there is, in his mind, no hope in the world. And so he just loses it. He's consumed by his anger, just like he has been all of his life. And the thing that struck me is there is nothing in his world that could effectively restrain his, his sin, his rage, his anger, I mean, all his life, parents, teachers, even police. The only way, way they could stop him was with, with, was with a gun, to shoot him. What he really needed, what he really, would have really benefited from was a fear of the Lord. To understand that there is a God who loves him, who made him, and who is so much bigger than him. To have a healthy sense of the judgment of God. That would have effectively, I think, what we see throughout all human history, restrained him, helped him to, to not be consumed by his own sin. Now, look, I know it's a, it's a book. He's not, I'm not pining for his you know, soul, but I'm just saying that I think it's helpful, it's compelling because what it reveals to us, it helps us to see that sin always consumes us when we don't have a fear of the Lord. That what's painted there is not really an extreme picture. It happens all over our community and in our lives. Because when we don't have a fear of the Lord, we really are at the center of our lives. We, we are the ones who are kind of governing where we go and, and we're at the mercy of our sinful hearts. And that always ends up with things unraveling. I mean, think about, think about early human history. Isn't this the shift that happened in the Garden of Eden? At the beginning, there was a real sense of contentment, happiness, joy, not just because it was perfect, not just because they were in a, a garden and all their material comforts were supplied for, because Adam and Eve, they walked with the Lord. They knew who he was. He was their creator. They were the creation. All was well and good until, until they wanted to take his place. That's what the serpent said. In Genesis 3, 5, when you eat of this fruit that is forbidden, when you sin, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. Begs the question, what place does God have in our lives? Again, I, I don't mean do you believe in God. I mean, do you really care what he says? Are you really interested in his wisdom, his instruction, his his commands, what he, what he thinks about you? Do, do you think about what will happen on the day of judgment? Think about it this way. If your life was a solar system, uh, who would be at the center? Uh, would it be God at the center? Or would, would you be at the center? Would, would you be like the sun and God is like Jupiter? Really big, but like far out, kind of on the outreaches of your thoughts and your, your thinking. He's there, but he's not really what everything is orbiting around. See, the thing about solar systems, the little that I know, is that the, th the thing with the biggest mass has to be at the center. If you take Venus and you switch places with the sun, I actually don't know exactly what would happen, but bad things would happen. Like, I think, I think if I understand Einstein correctly, that all the orbits would start to shift and the planets would crash into each other because the whole gravitational pull would, would flip. It wouldn't, wouldn't be good. Is your life like that? Does it seem off kilter? Does it seem like things aren't working properly? Is there anger or anxiety that tends to seep in all, all the time? 
So you probably think it's because of the things out there in your life, the circumstances, the, the things that have happened to you. But could it be that it's because the center isn't right? That the Lord really isn't at the center of your solar system. See, to fear the Lord means that we allow his moral, spiritual, gravitational pull to, to orient everything in our lives. And so even though there are difficult things, even though there are, I don't know, asteroids, comets, I don't know where the metaphor goes, but even though there's difficult things, they, they orbit correctly. There's a sense of rightness. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It begins with how you see God. Is he actually the being of greatest consequence in your life? And does he actually have a right to tell you what would be best? Because that's the next part of the ingredients. First, a, a, a healthy fear, a right fear of the Lord, but then that we walk in his ways. That's, that's how this looks in our lives, to walk in his ways. Uh, basically, is, um, we're talking about obedience. Okay? It's not just enough to believe in God. It's not just enough to fear God. We actually need to respond to God by patterning our lives after his commands. Uh, now, really quick, I just want to do a quick gospel sidebar. So just kind of hold that in your mind. Just going to step over here for a minute, just to make sure we're clear. Today, we're talking about a recipe for uh, experiencing the blessing and happiness of God. We're not talking about the recipe for salvation. The recipe for salvation is very, very clear that we believe, we have faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that Jesus is the one who obeyed God perfectly. He's the one who atoned for our sins. He's the one who conquered death by going into the grave and then rising again. And when we have faith in him, we have the assurance that even though we might die, we will live forever. That really is the beginning of all the joy and blessing of God. But the Bible also says to us, look, it's not just enough to believe in that. If you actually believe, you will live it out. And in the living of it, you will begin to experience the blessings of heaven here and now. And that, that's what we're talking about. How do we experience this, this blessing, this contentment, this joy that is gonna be given to us in full measure in heaven, but right now, how do we do that? The connection there is made over and over again in scripture. The belief and then the action. Sidebar is done. So look, James, James says, faith without works is dead. John says, those who truly love God will obey his commands Jesus says, whoever hears my words but doesn't do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It's not unclear in scripture that if we really want to be blessed, if we really want joy and contentment, we'll just do what God tells us to do. So my question, my pointed question is, why don't we do that? Why is it that there are certain areas of your life, of my life, where I still resist obeying God. I'm not talking about gray areas of like moral, you're trying to, I'm talking about like, like forgive, trust me, stop being bitter, be gracious, be pa obvious, very clear things that when there's circumstances in our lives, we, we don't do it. We don't do it consistently. Why, why is that? Why when God's saying, look here, you, you want my blessing? You want to experience everything? Then here, walk in my ways. I'm going to tell you how to live your life. Love the people around you. Love me first. Don't worship false idols. Don't get caught up in things that are impure. And yet we, we resist. Why, why is that? There's probably lots of reasons. I'm going to give you, I think, one of the main ones. 
because it ties into what we're talking about today. I, I think one of the main reasons we don't obey is that in that moment, and it could be a long moment, where we're trying to decide, am I, I going to go God's way? Am I going to go the other way? Am I going to... In that moment, we're not convinced that God's way is going to lead to greater happiness. In that moment, we look down the road where God is leading and we think, that looks, that looks what? It looks difficult, uh, dreary, uh, boring, uh, all sorts of things that might come into our mind. That living a Christian life is kind of whatever, bland, um, too hard, whatever it may be. So we decide, we say to ourselves, I, you know what, I think, I think this way is going to be better. Because it looks smoother, for one thing. It looks well lit. Like if I look down that path, man, I, that's going to make me happier. Isn't that what happens? We wouldn't articulate it that way. But in a fraction of a second, we instinctively say to ourselves, mm, yeah, over here, this looks better. This is going to lead to my greater happiness. And it never really does, does it? I mean, I mean in the long term. In the short term, sure, feels good, uh, brings a measure of peace in the moment, whatever it may be. But long term, it cannot bring us happiness because it's, it's going away from God. It's going away from the center, the right center of our world, our universe, and our lives. Here's what Jesus says that I think, I, think, I think explains this well. Matthew 7, talking about how we live our lives. He says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now he's talking about salvation, but he's really talking about the whole Christian mindset. Are, do we really believe that God's way is going to lead to our greater joy and happiness and contentment? I think, I think the problem is that a lot of the times it's, it's tough for us to believe that a hard life and a happy life can go together. We, we tend to think that if we're going to be happy, it's going to be easy. It's going to be smooth. There's not going to be any, any, any pushback. And yet that's not really what you see Certainly when you look in the Bible and even in human history, those who live easy, pleasant lives or not much is demanded of them. I mean, there's a sense of superficial happiness, I guess, but not a real sense of joy. I want to give you a picture of someone who is, I think, truly content in the Lord. Uh, maybe not someone you've thought of, although you've probably heard his name. His name is Enoch. Remember Enoch? He's like way back in the Old Testament. Uh, here's what it says about Enoch. Here's why he's famous. Genesis 5, 23. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, which wasn't that much back then. <clears throat> uh, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So that's the thing that Enoch is usually famous for, that he didn't have to die. God just took him away, which is great. But do you notice what else it says about Enoch? He walked with the Lord. That's, I think, really what we're talking about here in Psalm 128, that he walked in the ways of God. And in case you're like, well, that may just mean that he like walked kind of beside God or something. But listen, here's what it says in Hebrews 11. He was commended for having pleased God. God looked at what Enoch was doing for 365 years and said, yeah, that, that is good. That makes me happy. That's fantastic. Which we should just stop and think. I mean, for us, what, 80 years? We're exhausted of 80 years of trying to be obedient? 365 years? It's amazing. It's also amazing because 
Where he lived was worse than today. I know right now we think that everything is like just falling off the deep end and our society is falling apart. He lived one chapter before the flood of Noah. So like, if you, if you look at what God, God describes his community, it's like everyone was doing evil continually. It was horrible all the time. And you might think, well, then Enoch, I bet Enoch had a little cabin somewhere and he was just off by himself worshiping God. I and mean, he was just, you know, that's the way you would be obedient the whole time. No, Enoch was a prophet. If you look in the book of Jude, God said to Enoch, look, your job is to go out into this world that hates me and to tell them I'm going to come and judge them for 300, I don't know how long, hundreds of years, probably. If you look at his message, it's like, he's going to condemn you for your ungodliness, your ungodly ways. Enoch was not a popular guy. Like he didn't go to the supermarket and people were like, hey, Enoch, how's it going? They were like spitting on him. You're horrible. And yet he walked with the Lord. And by walked with the Lord, all of the things attached to that come, he pleased God. He was near to the Lord. I think it's very fair to say that Enoch would have been a content and happy man. Again, not slap happy, not skipping through the streets like he's on vacation, but a deep sense of contentment and joy because he knew his creator, he knew what he was called to, and he was walking in the ways of God faithfully. That, that is a genuine happiness. Better, better than the trivial, flimsy sense of happiness that our culture has because it endures. Because even when it's hard, even when he's disappointed, his joy isn't robbed from him. He has a real sense of who he is, a real sense of strength and hope. So here's my question. Uh, what path are you on most days? Are you walking in the ways of God? Are you responding to the word of God in terms of the obedience in your life? Are you even in the word to, to know where he's directing you? Because the two things that the word of God here is telling us, look, you want contentment, you want joy, a deep sense of happiness, fear the Lord, walk in his ways. Trust him that the way he's leading, though it seems dark and twisty, and it's going to be better. It's going to draw you near to the center of what is truly significant and important in the entire universe, which is God himself. So that's the first thing. The recipe for happiness in life, contentment in life, are those two things. But our psalm doesn't stop there. What it helps us to understand is that this isn't just for us. That a life lived in this way actually blesses the people around us. So the second part, be shorter, promise, uh, is called the collateral blessings of a truly happy life. Uh, normally we think of collateral damage, right? A missile hits and other people sadly are injured because of it. I'm saying to you, someone who at their center fears the Lord, walks in the ways of God, there's collateral blessings that happen. And this Psalm gives us four of them. I'm gonna go through, talk about some of them briefly, some of them a little more. Here's the first one, work. Our area of work, look at verse two. It says, you shall eat the fruit of your labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you if you fear the Lord, if you walk in his ways. I think this is fairly obvious in the sense that in general, notice this is wisdom literature. This isn't a rock solid guarantee that everyone who fears the Lord, every business idea is gonna be amazing. You're gonna do a new startup, sell it for millions of dollars the next year. It's not saying that. It's saying in general, that when you are someone who fears the Lord and walks in the ways of God, that you are going to be someone whose work is blessed. 
you tend to prosper. Why? Because you're going to be someone who works hard, works smart, works with integrity, works with perseverance. You're not going to be the person on the work crew who's like the first one to leave. You're going to be staying late. You're going to be serving the company well or starting your own company, caring for your, your employees well. You're going, to be, you're going to be a person of integrity who works hard. Generally speaking, that kind of work tends to prosper. That's what it's saying. I think we can see that connection, that that kind of a heart ends up with that kind of a, a workspace. The second one, I think, uh, really bears thinking about family. Look at verses four and five. It says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So that language, uh, wives, if you're wondering, that's like character growth language, uh, spiritual language. To be a fruitful vine in a home means to be a source of joy and encouragement. We see this in the uh, Proverbs 31 woman, that this is kind of, she's the, a blessing in the home. There's a, a sense of growth and maturity, spiritually speaking, in terms of character. For kids to be olive shoots, uh, the metaphor there is olive plants apparently take a long time to grow, and then they produce fruit for a long time. And that's kind of like parenting, right? Kids take a number of years to grow to maturity, and the idea is that then when they're, they're ready, they they produce fruitfully. They live fruitfully. So again, this isn't, this isn't a rock-solid guarantee. There are times where uh, faithful husbands and wives, um, moms and dads, have children that walk away from the Lord. It's not like a, a rock-solid guarantee, but it is clearly highlighting the collateral effect of someone who lives for the Lord and walks in his ways, that that will be a blessing, will have an impact on the people in their family. So why is that? I want to think about this for a moment. How is it that an individual who lives that way, who sees God that way, then somehow blesses, affects the people around them? How, how is that? Is it just like osmosis? Is it just because you're in the same house and that people tend to imitate each other? A little bit, but I think it's much deeper than that. Here's, I think, the key dynamic of, of why this works. Those who fear God and walk in the ways of God will seek to genuinely love the people around them. And the biblical love that's articulated here in the word of God is an incredible agent of change. If you are truly loving for the people around you, then that means when you interact with them, you will always seek to do what is most helpful for them. And by helpful, I mean, I mean in terms of their soul. And usually that looks like two things. Usually we either um, respond to people with an incredible amount of softness or sometimes intentional hardness. So here's what I mean. If you're someone who fears the Lord, walks in his ways, that means that you should be a very gracious person. That for the people in your life, like in your family, the, the majority of the time you're going to be gracious, patient, merciful, loving, understanding, why? Because that's how God is to you. And, and you see him as large and you want to follow his ways. So even though the people in your life are difficult and bitter and argumentative or whatever it may be, you, you're because you're, you're looking to the Lord and saying, I'm not going to respond that way. I'm going to love them. Because of that, there's this consistent impact of gracious, sacrificial biblical love, which has a, a huge effect on a hard heart. It's incredibly helpful. You've probably experienced this with someone in your life where you've been just bent out of shape for some reason and they're gracious and kind. It's hard to always be angry with that person. You tend to soften. 
But that's only one side of biblical love. The other side is the hardness. And the hardness is just as important because if you really love someone, there will be times when you talk to them about their sin, when you confront them with the truth of their error, when, when you graciously, lovingly help them to identify certain idols in their lives, percentage-wise, this is much smaller. 80, 90% love, grace, mercy. And then there's another part though, when you, you sit down, you have a conversation, you say, honey, son, daughter, look, there's, there's something that, man, I'm not sure if you see this, but I really love you. I need to talk to you about this. That is an incredibly powerful thing to have people in your lives that love you enough to be gracious with you, but also to speak words of difficult truth in a way that is really for you and and not for them. They're not just argumentative. They're not just annoyed. They're not screaming at you because you you bug them. They They really love you. And so they're speaking to you about your sin. Do you see how helpful this is? If you do this for 10, 15, 20 years, your whole family life. It's not surprising that there would be this collateral blessing from someone who is truly changed by the Lord and then interacts with the people like that. This is, this is discipleship. This is what we are meant to do with all the people in our lives to seek to affect them, impact them with the love of Christ. And what this Psalm is telling us is look for a husband, a father, a, a mom, a wife, even brother, sister, in a family unit, because you're so close, there is such a potential for blessing, for the happiness you have to be passed on, not just because you're near each other, but because you're active in each other's lives. This is something we should take to heart, to think that fearing the Lord, walking in his ways, isn't just for us. It really does impact our family. And the next thing is it impacts our community. Verse five, the Lord bless you from Zion, May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. There it's really taking that same idea and just saying, look, it's not just for your blood family, your your family where you live, but the family of faith. That's Jerusalem, that's Zion. That God's people have always been called to bless each other in the same way. As we are changed by the word of God and following his ways, we seek to impact the people in, in our church. And this is, this is why we organize ourselves in things like community groups or smaller groups because it's a little difficult in this kind of environment for us to really have that kind of deep uh, relationship that's needed. But if we find ourselves in groups throughout the week, that's what we do with community groups, we have an opportunity to know people, to love them well, to be gracious, understanding, and also support them in their struggles and at times confront them in their sin. This dynamic is meant to be expressed in the church as well. Hear me. I know last year was tough for community groups. Zoom is not ideal for this kind of relationship, but we need to strive for this. This is what it means to be the church, not just us on our own with the Bible. It doesn't work that way. The Spirit of God can work in us, but he so often uses the people around us. But if they don't know us, we're going to be shortchanging ourselves. Okay, last thing. Legacy. Verse six, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. What kind of legacy are you a product of? Let me ask that. 
It may be that by the grace of God, you can look back and see parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who love the Lord. Praise God. But it may also be that you look back on a legacy of godlessness, that your parents were believers, grandparents, that, that God miraculously just got a hold of you, saved you. The point is that the individual blessings of God are always meant to be passed down from one generation to another that that is part of the joy, the true joy that we can have, that by the end of our lives, we can look and say, praise God for what you've done in my family. In fact, I got a little glimpse of this this week. Uh, The elders and I were praying for uh, an older uh, guy in the church uh, who's been diagnosed with cancer and and probably doesn't have a a lot of months to live. And we were asking him how, how he's doing, like how he's really doing. And his answer was so good. I mean, keep in mind, uh, a man who is very near the end of his life, about to go through chemo, his answer was this, you know, the Lord has been good to me. Amazing. The Lord has been good to me. He said, my children are following the Lord. My grandchildren, many of them are following the Lord. Here was a man who could, just as he stepped back, be so thankful to God for the legacy that he's able to live. He wasn't saying that I was the perfect father, the perfect grandfather. He was simply saying that it seemed that God had been using him, that the legacy you can see after him is one of people who are blessed and content in the Lord. What a joy that will be. Should that not be one of our goals? Something we work towards? Can you see the connection between us fearing the Lord as individuals, us walking in the ways of God, and then the people around us in concentric circles having the potential of being blessed. All of this happens because we see God rightly and because we follow him in his ways. And my encouragement to us, whether you're a guest here or part of the church, is that that we would allow these things to, to sit on our heart, to shape our heart, to convict us, to lead us, that we would be overwhelmed both by the love of God and the fact that he is actually telling us that there is a right way to live and that it will lead to our happiness and joy. In fact, the last pivot I want to make is that this isn't really about the pursuit of happiness. Like the founding father said, this is about the certainty of happiness, the confidence that we can have, that as God leads us, it will be down a road, maybe difficult, maybe confusing, maybe unknown, but we can be certain that it will lead to our happiness and joy and contentment for now and and forever. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word, thankful for the encouragement and yet the instruction uh, that we've been given in terms of how to pursue something that is, is good for us. We should want to pursue happiness, contentment in life, joy in life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see that it will only happen for the long term in, in deep, real ways when we turn from sin, when we believe in you as Savior and Lord, and when we fear the Lord as we should. Help us, please. Help us to identify those areas where just obedience is tough, where we just aren't believing that your ways are best. Convict us of those areas. May we, may we confess those sins right now in prayer, later on with people in our lives. And may we trust you that you do actually know what is best for us. As you are supremely happy, your desires for us to be the same regardless of the circumstances of our lives. Lord, may you do this in us by your grace and for our good. 
I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.